Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, glad you guys are here. I, I think we're going to do, do this two nights, aren't we? Yeah. Two, two weeks. So we'll, we'll keep it on time. I've, I, we live in Atlanta now, and um, I've noticed that in Atlanta, they're a little more relaxed on time. And uh, boy, I was, you know, we were speaking here the other night and, and uh, at another place, and they said, okay, we need to be done at 8.30. And I was like, yeah whatever, you know, and at 8.30, people started just leaving, and I was like, wow, you guys are serious Pentagon and engineer people up here, man, so uh, I, I will endeavor to stay on time, um, so whatever I don't, we don't get to, we'll just do it next week, and if you have any questions, I'll hang around, and Donna as well, if you have any questions. This whole thing about um, evangelism is really fascinating to me because um, of the way we make it into an event instead of a way of life. And, and I, you know, when you make things into events, you, you have to do a lot of preparation for them. Because, oh, okay, I think I'm going to share my faith right here. I think, I, I think I'm going to do it. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not like that. You know, I don't know. What am I going to say? I don't know. I can't. I forget it. I'm not going to do it like that. Or it's like you're in a Starbucks or something, and you feel like, ah, I probably should talk to that guy over there. I just feel like I should. So, Lord, I'm going to need a clear sign on this one. If that person stands up, goes left around that table, past me, drops a copy of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye on my table, and it doesn't spill my coffee, I'll know it's you. <laughs> and I will do, I'll die for you if that happens <laughs> and then the guy walks by and shoot he reads Salinger right on the tail and then you're like oh I'm not ready I'm not ready like this. <laughs> well what, you know what Jesus says with his great commission is it's not really go into the world like are you one of the ones that are going to go into the world his command is, as you are going into the world every day, just as you're going into the world, make disciples. And so we're not, it's not like we're doing evangelism. What we're doing is discipling people. And we're discipling them in what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Now, if I asked you, uh, there's too many people to ask this question to, but rhetorically, if I ask you this question, what is the good news that we have to offer people in this world, in this broken world, fear-filled world? What's the good news that I have to say to the waitress, to the cashier, to guys I work with, to people on the plane? What's the good news I have to share with them that's so compelling that they long to hear it? Okay, let me tell you what it's not. I can tell you how to go to heaven when you die. That's not it. That's, a, that's this much of the message. And we've made that the focal point of it. And so, you're, so I don't know, you know, like in the police department, and you, you're working with guys, men and women, who every day have to think about dying. So when you, if you say, if you die tonight, do you know where you spend eternity? Yeah. We don't care. Or talking to a Muslim. If you die tonight, do you know where you'll spend eternity? Yep. And if I blow you up, I'll go there faster. <laughs> oh. No, they didn't say that in EE. They didn't teach me what to say after that in EE or whatever, four laws, whatever you're using. But if, you're, if you see, we, we prefer the term sharing your faith 
because evangel evangelism is a different word, which we'll talk about, but sharing, if I'm sharing my faith with a person as I'm going into the world, that's a very, that's not an event. It's just a lifestyle. And so sharing your faith, the definition of it, the way I think of it is, the way I see Jesus doing it, we'll look at it in a second, because we want to model Jesus, of course, and how he does it, and then Paul and Peter and the other guys. Sharing your faith is coming alongside a person who's falling apart, who's being destroyed by Satan in their life, whether they know it or not, and saying to them, there's a, there's a way that this can change starting right now, today, and I know you don't believe it, but I do, and so I'm going to use my faith, I'm going to share it with you to encourage you and help you go forward, and then as we walk along, it'll become your own. That's what it is. Sharing my faith with this person who has none. So, for example, we're invited over to speak in Palestine um, at Berzeit University. Me and I take two of our young people with us because the thing I like about young people is that they actually still believe this stuff, you know? And they, they kind of think the Bible's really true all the way. You know, they haven't learned, well, don't be presumptuous. They haven't gotten there yet. They're still immature and just say, let's try it, that kind of thing. Like, I'd like to walk on the water. And Jesus is like, don't be presumptuous to Peter. Does he say that? <laughs> it's like, come on. You want to walk up? Come on. Like that. So then, that's where we want to be with Jesus. And so I take two young people. Plus, I want them to learn. So we go into Palestine, and we're invited there. This is interesting. We're invited there by the Palestinian Authority, by Fatah. They invite us. And the reason they invite us is because they have Fatah people that are in some of the trainings that we do in Jordan. We do professional training, all kinds of different professional training. But we talk a lot about the kingdom of God, Allah, in the trainings that we do with, with Jordanian government officials in a place where it's illegal to proselytize. We do it quite openly. We're well known for it. Ed us do it. And, um, and so, so these Fatah party members, very Muslim, very don't like Americans kind of thing, the ones that we're terrified of every day here, because remember, they're going to take over the United States by 10, I think, tonight they'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so they invite us, they go back to Palestine, and they tell the leadership in Ramallah that we have good news. Isn't that interesting? And that, and that they want the other students at the university to hear this good news. And so the Palestinian Authority contacts us, which means they have to go to the government of Jordan. We have to sit down with the Jordanian government official who's over Palestinian affairs in Jordan, because it's a very tense situation among Jordanians and Palestinians. And so we have to sit with them. And then you're just sitting there. It's like, wow, is this really happening? So we're sitting there. And the Palestinian Authority is asking that these are all Muslims talking together. The Palestinian Authority is saying, we would like these Christians to come over and speak in Palestine. And the Jordanians are like, why? Because we think, what, we've been told by our people that what they say is, would be really good news and helpful for us as people. The Jordanian official, his concern, he, they don't want any tension, any unrest among Palestinians. So he looks at me and he says, is this going to cause us any trouble? And I said, it could bring peace in the Middle East. And uh, 
I said, if that's troublesome to you, then yes. But if it's not, then no. And so he says, all right. And he asked me to give him an example of what we're going to do. I give, I actually, we actually give him what we're going to say. to the. So these are Muslims. And I, I give him what I'm going to say, but I ask him, don't show the Fatah guys because I want to say it to them without them knowing it first. So he reads through the material, which is all out of the Bible, by the way. And he goes, wow, OK. I can, I can see where you're going with this. OK, we get permission. You can go with them. So get it. So the Muslims are giving the other Muslims permission who are asking these Muslims if the Christians can come. And the guy says, oh, you're just going to read the Bible to them? Go ahead. Yeah. Now, this is what we lay in bed at night. These are the men we lay in bed at night and we're terrified they're coming to get us. This is, God is not afraid of these guys. God is not afraid of Sharia law. He's not afraid of mosques and where they're built. He's not. Why are we? Why are we? Are they greater than God? Islam greater than God, and we can't stop it. So, so we go over there, and I take a single girl who's brand new, working with us, who happens to be from Hong Kong, Chinese, and one a, a new guy that's working with us who's from Oklahoma. And uh, I just say that because he graduated from a Bible college in Oklahoma, small Bible college in Oklahoma, and I'm telling you, the Muslim world blew his mind. I mean, it was like, wow. Because you know he had a certain perspective on Islam and Muslims and what they were like, and when he came over and realized it wasn't true, that really impacted him. So we go, we got to get clearance from Israel, because even though Palestine is you know supposed to be autonomous, Israel still decides who goes in and out. So we go, we go, cross over the border from Jordan through the Palestinian crossing, which tourists don't go through, but we did because we're going with the Palestinians, and that's the only way they can go through. So we get pulled out of the line. Why are you coming into Palestine? This is Israeli police. Um, we're going in. We're, we're teachers. We're, we work for the Jordanian government. We're gonna. We're invited to speak at Berzeit, which is a very well-known university, actually. Um, we're doing a four-day lecture series over there at the invitation of the Palestinian Authority. Okay, wait, hold on. So they put us in a little room. We're in the room for eight hours, just in this little room. They don't say anything else to us. We're in the room. <laughs> We're sitting there six hours, seven hours. They start turning the lights off in the border crossing because it's closed. We're still sitting in there. The, the, the uh, custodial staff starts mopping the floors. The lights are all out. We're still sitting in the room. And uh, finally, this colonel comes and uh, he says, OK, you can go through. And I said, J I'm just curious, because I do have some knowledge of government intelligence agencies. It probably took you about 30 seconds to figure out if we were red flagged or not. Why did we sit here for eight hours? He said, that's none of your business, but you can go, go. So we go in, go through Jerusalem, across Jerusalem into Ramallah, which is a, a walled in um, city, <laughs> 35 foot wall around the city with guard towers. And Palestinians are not allowed to go in or out unless the Israeli guards say they can. It's a pretty tense situation. A lot of complicated politics involved and great hostility and tension there. So we work, we have to go through, we have to be searched, and we go through, in, into, into, you have to go into solitary confinement rooms and wait until they turn on a green light that opens the door. You don't have any contact with people. It's very impersonal. And we make it all the way through into Ramallah. Inside Ramallah is more than a million people in this little city. 
Um, about 80% of them are men between the ages of 18 and 25 who have no jobs, who have no future because they can't go anywhere. They're not, they don't have any citizenship anywhere. And so they're basically just wandering around all day long getting mad. It's very, and so like if, I, if you accidentally bump into one of these guys, it's like, it's like a time bomb. They're just poised for violence. And um, so anyway, so we're walking through, and I'm explaining it to the, the young guy and young girl that are with us. They're, they're fresh out of college and uh, came over to, for us to mention them for two years. And I'm explaining to them, be careful. Don't walk into anyone. Keep your eyes down. Um, be humble. And so we're walking through, and we, we're, we have to walk to the place where we're going to start the lecture series. And we're coming down this one street, and a fight starts in the street between some Fatah guys and some Hamas guys. It gets violent very quickly. I push the girl into the, a doorway, into like we could just only get into this little alcove up against the wall. And I just said, don't move. Stay up against the wall. And then the AK-47s come out. 45-minute gunfight on the street. And, uh, and um, the, <laughs> the girl, she's like, She's like, this is incredible. This is incredible. She's trying to poke her head out to see who's winning. And I'm like grabbing her by the head. Don't do that. This is, you know. But it, and so it goes on for 45 minutes. And then finally it ends. The Palestinian Authority kind of gets control of it. And it ends, you know, we don't know who, how many are dead or what. And so we just move down the street, go into the building where we're going to have the lecture series. This is a world. That is a broken world. That is a world with no hope. With, there's no joy, and so what's the good news that I, as an American Christian, have to offer those guys? What's the good news? The last time I felt that, that intensity of violence waiting to happen was when I walked through a state prison. That's what it's like. Just mad people that can't do anything, who are in their second generation of growing up in that environment. It's just incredible. So anyway, now, I'm not commenting about the politics, about why it's there, and I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is the reality of what's there. And what, what are you going to say to these people if you get the chance to speak to them? So, so we go in, and we, we, get, we meet the leadership, and, you know, and, and they apologize for the violence and kind of you know, talk about this is, this is like what happens when you get pin up a bunch of people and don't, they don't have anything to do. Um, and so and they, they're victims. They have a victim mentality, and they're resistant. So, uh, and so he said, tomorrow, you know, we've got between two and 400 students, grad students that we want you to speak to. I'm the one that's going to do the main speaking because I have the, you know, educational credentials to do it. And uh, <laughs> so, so we go, they put us in an apartment for the night, and I say to Chris, the guy, and Rebecca's the girl. And I said, now, here's what we got to figure out. What are we going to say tomorrow to these people? You saw what it's like today. You saw the hostility level here. You saw the tension. What are you going to say to these people that's good news? That you're going to go to heaven when you die. That will not fly here. So the question is, what's the good news? What's the good news? And, and, and the thing is, we do have good news to say. And that's called, sh we're going to share our faith in this environment. The reason we're standing in front of these Muslims is because God said, I can get you in the middle of all of them. They're not hard to reach. 
They're not resistant to the gospel. They're resistant to Christianity. They're resistant to Western ideals. They're resistant to Western politics. They've never even heard of Jesus yet. Do you understand that? They don't even know anything about Jesus. They, know, they, they think they know what Christians believe. And so I, so I said, we have, got, we, we have got to say something that Jesus would say to these people, or they're not, you know, who, we're locked in here with them, by the way. <laughs> you know, there's no way out of here. And the Chris said, I already thought of that. You know, I already realized that. During the gun battle, you know, that where are we going to run to? The, the wall? And, uh, and so I said, so what we, better, what we say better work. So now here's the cool thing about living in the kingdom of God as we do if you know Christ as Lord and Savior is that as people of the kingdom, we have direct access to the king himself, right? And so when we have an issue or question, we can go straight to the king and ask him. And here's our question when we prayed that night. Lord, what would you say in this situation? What would you say? Now, we really hope he speaks because we don't know actually what to say in this situation. Um, so we need the Lord to really meet with us and, and kind of tell us what to say. So it, this is the passage that we kind of like came to our mind when we were doing this. It's John chapter 5. It's an interesting passage. And, um, and so we, we, did, you know, we were praying together. And actually Rebecca said, I just feel like the Lord wants us to read John 5. Now she's a rookie at this stuff. She, she doesn't know, have any idea basically what she's doing, but those are the best people because they so depend on God. The older you get, the more you rely on my experience, my education, my knowledge, which, which makes you, can make you less receptive to a childlike faith in Christ. Because now I know it. Now I got it. Like that. It's good when you don't have it. Because then you've got to go to the Lord and really depend on it. So here's John chapter 5. Now, what I, what I want to look at here is how does Jesus share his faith? How does he do it? And this, we, could, you know, we could spend a year together. This is what we do on the field. We spend a year together just working through all the Gospels, especially. But even into the Old Testament, talking about how does God speak to people? What, what, how, what language does he use? What tone does he use? How does he, how does he respond to these kind of people? How does Jesus talk to a centurion? How does he talk to a leper? How does he talk to a prostitute? And what's wild is he talks to them all differently. He has a different way of speaking to each one. Why do we have only one way to speak to everyone? Where do we come up with that? It's more expedient to have one memorized thing you say to everyone. And that's why when you say it, they go, what are you talking about? What? And okay, he's, he's resistant. Move on. They didn't even get what you said. How he's resisting what? So it's a lot of work. And you have to pay a lot of attention to people when you're talking to them. And you have to really care. Because people can tell in 20 seconds whether you care or not. Right? You know, they have these certain kind of detectors built into them that can detect when something's not real. <laughs> and it goes off very quickly, especially if you start talking about religion. So I'm just going to pick one. This is the one because this is the one we read that night, and here and, and let's just walk through it. And remember, when you're reading the Bible, your question is how because what Jesus is doing is prescriptive as well as descriptive. He's always showing his disciples. Here's what you say in this situation, this kind of situation. 
here's what you say in this kind of situation. And you can watch the disciples, especially when you get into Acts, do the exact same thing they see Jesus doing. It's really, it's a fascinating study. You know, maybe we'll get into more of it next week. But let's do five. Okay, John chapter five. Okay, later on, there was a Jewish festival or feast for which Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem a pool near the Sheep Gate. This pool in the Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches or, or colonnades. In these lay a great number of sick people, some blind, some crippled, some paralyzed and shrivel up. Now, not every translation has this, but they're waiting for the bubbling up of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at the appointed seasons into the pool and moved and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was cured of whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Okay, so whether your translation has that in there or not, this is the, the idea of these people is, you know, if, we, if we're sick and afflicted and we lay around this pool, an angel comes down, stirs the water, the first one and gets healed. Like that. And so they're there waiting for this to happen. Now, does this really happen? We don't know. Who knows? Is this just a myth? We don't know. We're not sure. But either maybe someone saw it one time or it was a cool story and so everyone gathers there. Who knows whether it really happens or not. The thing is, these people are there. Now, why are they there? Let's say this is not true and they've never seen it happen. Why are they there then? What? Okay, yeah, they have faith. Can people that don't believe in God be people of faith? That's what Jesus is going to demonstrate right here. They believe in everybody believes in something here. And here, I'll even say it this way. There's no such thing as a person that doesn't believe in God. There's no, I don't care what a person calls themselves, atheist, whatever. The problem is not that they don't believe in God. And this is true for us as well. The problem is that what they believe about God is false. So if you are good friends with an atheist and you get really down into his heart with him, he wasn't born not believing in God. But there came a day... What, what, do you, what do you think, for an atheist who says there is no God, how do you think he came to that conclusion? Now, later in life, he'll do the big, well, logically, blah, blah, blah. but that's not how it happens initially. How does it happen that a person who's born with a sense of belief comes to a place where he says there is no God? How do you think that happens in a person's life? Some kind of hurt. Exactly right. And for some reason, when people are hurt and they react violently, we don't like them. But how do you, what are you supposed to do when you're hurt? So if, like, like our, you know, I, we, I know these atheist guys in Atlanta. I like them a lot. I like being with them. They're super smart. You know, they're not dumb because they're atheists. People aren't stupid because they believe in evolution. Evolution's a brilliant theory if there's no God. It's incredible. It's wrong, but it's really brilliant. <laughs> but don't think a person's stupid because they think something different than you do. Christians got to be really careful about that. But anyway, when I'm talking, one of them, I was asking, I said, like, at what point in, in your life did you begin to believe that God is not there? That's how I say it. Not that there's no God. You believe he's not there. And it was a time in his life, and he, he shared it with me pretty openly, where he desperately needed God to show up, and God didn't show. Now, when you call out to God in the way, any way that you know how, and he doesn't show up, as far as you're concerned. What does that mean about you? 
How does the person feel like, hey, I cried out to God and he didn't show? What does that make? How does that make the person feel about themselves in relation to God? Unimportant. Not worthy. Unimportant. Now, I'm telling you, in our church in Atlanta, struggling with the sense of unworthiness is huge among our congregation. Huge. Oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We're going to heaven when we die. But when you get down to it and say, why don't you really step out there with God? I'm not sure he'll show up. Oh, you're a practical atheist that's going to heaven when he dies. Because <laughs> you don't live like a person that really thinks God will show up. So this is what makes it difficult for us to share our faith. We always have to come back to what do I believe about God? And what, if, when I, what am I going to say to a person if I myself don't actually believe it? Okay, so that's what Jesus is going to demonstrate here. So he, he's, he goes, verse 5, There was a certain man there who had suffered with a deep-seated and lingering disorder for 38 years. Okay, so this guy has been waiting for the water to be stirred for 38 years. At least, we don't know, but a long time. 38 years. Huh. Why does a guy, why do, why do people in general keep doing things when things don't work? Why? You want to hold on to something? Want to hold on to something? What would you say? No, no, Yeah, there's, there's no other option. It's like, what else am I, what else are we going to do? So let me just, I want to keep this, I want to keep us in this conversation. Not really, the lost people, not us. But us too. Why do we keep doing things in our lives that don't work? Why do we keep going to jobs that we hate? Why do we keep um, spending money that we don't have? Why do we keep doing that stuff? Because there's nothing else. That's what we believe. What else is there? Who's going to pay my mortgage? Can't God pay your mortgage? Oh, God, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's not going to pay my mortgage. Why? I just don't think he's, I don't think, why would he? I'm not worthy. You know, that's, when you talk, get down in your own heart, that's where you are. And so to share that with a lost person, you know, we can only speak from the overflow of our own heart, our own relationship with God. That's what other people cling to when you start talking. And when you say it to them, this is, you know, it's like, this is not a theory I'm telling you, this is what I saw yesterday in my own life. I'm telling you this stuff works. That's how you share your faith. So the man's been there for a long time. Where else is he going to go? What else, who, who else is going to help him? So he, there he is for 38 years. And then Jesus, it says, verse 6, when Jesus noticed him lying there helpless, knowing that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, listen to this evangelism question, do you want to get well? <laughs> not, not this. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? No. Why not? Do you know where you're going when you die? No. Th th do you think this man is concerned about where he goes when he dies? In the condition he's in? Jesus' question to him is a question about right now. Right this minute. I want to know, do you want to get well? See, now, when he, when he says to the guy, do you want to get well... Why, does the guy, why would the guy immediately respond back to Jesus and not go, don't do evangelism with me. What are you, some kind of evangelical Republican? Get away from me. That why, you know, what? Why does the guy immediately respond to Jesus? Why? 
Because Jesus is talking exactly about his real condition right now. Not some abstract condition. You're lost. Do you know that? <laughs> no, I know right where I am. I, I no, I mean metaphorically you're lost. Well, I am? <laughs> Do you see this? They're like, what? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so what Jesus, the, here's the, what's the key word in that, that one word in, the, in this question Jesus asked that the man goes, whoa, what's the word? Well. well, that's the word, right? Bang, right to his heart. What's the place? And Jesus touches right on the most critical area of the guy's life. Now, is it hard to, do you have to be Jesus to figure out that's probably the issue for this guy? Do you have to be a prophet from God to figure out this guy probably wants to get well? No. There's his condition. Jesus learns his condition. What's the condition here? Here, let's look around. Let's look what's happening. So then he asks them the question, do you want to get well? That's his opening um, diagnostic question. Do you want to become well? Or do you, are you sincere about wanting to get well? Do you really want to get well? This question. Now, why does Jesus ask the man that kind of ridiculous question? Why? What's he doing with that question? What do you think? Yeah. Engaging. He's it's engaging. Mm -hmm. He's seeing where his heart is. Yeah, he's figuring. He's measure, He's he's figuring out his spiritual condition. He sees the physical. That's where he starts. But now he wants to know the spiritual condition of the man. So he asks him a question about, "Do you really want to get well?" This question is like so profound. It's so deep, and it's Jesus talking to the man's deepest need. Do you really want to get well? Because he wants to know, tell me what's going on in the fact that you want to get well, and you're not. Do you see that? He's making him, you want to, but you realize you're not, right? So listen what the man says. Do you really want to get well? The invalid answered, sir... I have nobody when the water is moving to put me in the pool. What does that mean? What's he saying when he says that? You don't look at a guy that says something like that and go, duh. What's he saying? Because Jesus is listening to what the man is saying. He's listening to what the man is saying. Not, you, you know, we were just talking up here. There, there, we, there's, it's called the language architecture. And what it means is that every culture has a certain has certain language forms that that you use in every situation. They're, it's called formulaic language. And so when you're in a situation, we we speak in formulas to each other because we don't have to. Then we don't have to think about what we're saying. We don't really have to engage our brain into it because we can just slide down into the formula. They'll respond in the formula, and we can just move on with our day like that. The problem is we use it with our spouses too. And our kids. Very dangerous. Because most people know, you don't give a rip about what you're asking them. Hey, how are you? I don't really care, but I'm the guy got to say it. We're in the formula. So how are you? I'm awful. Well, see you later. <laughs> what Jesus, and they, and they have formulaic language all through, in this culture too, but Jesus does is he breaks the formula all the time. He violates the rules of formulaic language. 
into what is known as, among linguists, generative language, which means you actually have to think of a new thing to say to each person. That's a lot of work, isn't it? I can't even think of a new thing to say to my wife. My, here, here's a, and if you've been married a long time like we have, you don't even really have to say the whole words. Because you know each other so well. It's like, hey, I, yeah, I knew, yeah, OK, well. <laughs> and, and we both know the whole conversation. But, So there's no, it's all like, there's no contact, basically. And it's like, my husband doesn't understand me. My wife doesn't, well, have you ever had an actual generative conversation with him where you had to think of new words? Maybe two-syllable words in the conversation. Or adjectives that are accurate, adverbs that are precise. Have you ever done that? No, that's too much work. Plus the Redskins were playing, you know. I've been out of the country for a long time. So, um, but so Jesus breaks language architecture, and he violates it. And so to, to come up to a lame man who's been there for a long time, wait, the question, do you want to get well? It's like, wait a second. You just, what? You just broke. And I mean, Ed and I did this the other day um, in, the, in a restaurant talking to, we, well, we've actually done it together twice in restaurants. And, and uh, we, the, we had a waitress at a restaurant, and uh, we just broke the rules of conversation with her. And our conversation with her was, we care about you. We want to know what's happening in your life. Please tell us. And she start, and she kind of was like, what? It's a super crowded restaurant, you know? And, and, uh, and we're like pausing in this madhouse to say, what, tell, us, tell us what's going on. And she says, well, um, I, I'm, I got divorced early on, and I have a kid, and it's been hard. And then she stops, and she goes, why am I telling you this? <laughs> she caught herself, like, wait, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. And we say, well, we want to know. And, that, and what, it's because we love her. We do. So that's what Jesus is doing here. So, that, man, when you talk to people, talk to them like they're people. So the invalid said, sir, I have no one to put, when the water's moving, to put me into the pool. Okay, what's he, what is he saying about life? That's a life answer. What's he saying about his condition? It sucks, I'm all alone. alone. I'm alone? No. And can I, say, can I do it myself? <laughs> can I make my word, marriage work myself? Um, can I make myself happy? Can I, build, can I make myself have faith? No. This guy speaks more truth about his condition than most Christians I know. There, I, I, there's no one to help me. I, I can't get there by myself, right? And when he says that, when he says that, Jesus is like, yes, exactly right, good. So, what, so when the man says, Sir, I have no one when the water is moving to put me in the pool. I'm, I, I'm alone. I can't do it myself. Jesus moves on. So, I, well, son, do you understand your condition of sin? That's how, you know, let me explain your condition. You're separated from God and you're a sinner. This guy's like, why don't you have legs? Why don't you walk away? <laughs> I don't need someone telling me this stuff. Can you imagine... Can you imagine you're in a shopping mall, you're at Tyson's, and there's a little, little girl and she's crying and hysterical and fearful because she's lost. And you go up to her and you go, what, little girl, hold on. Let me explain something to you. You're lost. 
<laughs> you are separated from your parents. And this is producing fear and hostility in your life. <laughs> she goes, thanks for helping, you know, that. great, wow. That's how we share the gospel. And, it, and the reason you're separate, the reason you're lost is you probably disobeyed your mom. Children should obey their parents in all things. It's the first command in the Bible. How helpful is that? How about this to her? I know you're lost. I know where your mother is. Come with me. Good news. Good news. You don't have to tell a, a lost person knows they're lost. They know. But people know how they feel. So he said to him, do you want to get well? The invalid said, sir, I have nobody when the water is moving to put me into the pool. And then he says this, but while I'm trying to come into it myself, someone else steps down ahead of me. His view of himself is I can't do it myself. What's his view of humanity around him? They don't care. And he's exactly right. They don't care. So here's, what the, here's, here's what's sitting at this pool. A guy who has amazing faith. He, belie he believes what he does not see. He believes it because, the, and he's put, it's, it's all I got. I, I'm giving my faith to it. He is a believer. Muslims always say to me, don't call us unbelievers. That insults us. Call us people who don't believe everything you do. But we are believers. We do believe in something. That's really important. And so this is a man who believes in something. He's holding on to what he believes. And he understands his own condition. I can't save myself. And he understands the human condition. And no one's going to help me. He's right there. He's right at the door of the kingdom in every way. Do you see that? It's all in place. What's the one thing he's missing? He's only missing one thing. Jesus. That's all he's missing. That's the only message. So when Paul says, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that's all. That's why. Because when we add stuff to Jesus, it gets complicated, it gets debatable, and it just gets messy. And Satan's there, Jesus is not enough. He's not enough. And we believe that he's not enough. No, it can't be just Jesus. You know, what's their position on the hypostatic union of God and man? And Jesus. Do they not get that? Where is Jesus asking people those kind of questions? Where? If you ask Peter that question, he'd be like, huh? I just want to walk on water. <laughs> and cut someone's ear off. That's why, that's why I'm here. And I'm going to build a church on you. Really? Him? Bad choice. <laughs> I would have never picked him. So, so Jesus, this is all in place. And so here's what Jesus says to him. Hey. Because the man's looking at Jesus now. He's turned away from the pool. Now he's looking at Jesus. There you go. That's it. And he's looking at Jesus. And Jesus is speaking into his heart. And he tells him the situation that he's in. And Jesus says, you know what? You got it. Get up. Stand up. And he stands up. Because the only thing he's missing is where he's believing in doesn't work. I do. Stand up. Like that. You know, I was, when, I, when we were reading this together... Chris, Chris, the guy from Oklahoma, he said, he's so funny. He said, he said, you know what we would have done in our town if people were sitting around a pool waiting for an angel to come down and touch it and get in? We'd have written a pamphlet against it. 
10 reasons why belief in the pool is wrong and heretical and handed it out at the pool. What, it, what does that do to hopeless people, handing them out pamphlets and telling them they're stupid and wrong? It doesn't help. It's not how Jesus talks to people. <clears throat> so he says, stand up and walk. And, and then look at this. Get up, pick up your bed, sleeping bag, walk. And instantly the man became well and recovered his strength and picked up his bed and walked. But that happened on the Sabbath. Oh, shoot, wrong day. <laughs> I mean, I know you're well, but it was the wrong day. And that's important. Is it? <laughs> hmm. So, but it happened on the, I like that, but it happened on the Sabbath. <laughs> so the Jews kept saying to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and you have no right to pick up your bed. It is not lawful. So it's like this. See that guy? He's walking. He's walking. See that guy? He's walking on the Sabbath. That's two very different views of an event. One's hooked up in doctrine and legalism and the other's like bless you it's like it's like when it's like when peter and paul come back to the jerusalem council and they're like the gentiles are believing they're coming into the kingdom that we've seen the spirit of god at work in them and people were disappointed and angry about that really why they can't do that why they can't do it that way they can't just walk into the kingdom who do they think they are they need to come the way we tell them really Wow, that makes you God. <laughs> Dangerous thing to do with God. He doesn't like it. I was telling the guys tonight, in the Bible, if you read the Bible, there, there's, there's instances where God just instantly drops people dead. Not many, but he does do it. And uh, <laughs> it's just like you're dead. Boom. That's a, uh, and, and, it's, and the most often time he does it, there's, there's really two categories. One is when someone does something and claims that, it, that they represent God or that they are the God kind of thing, where they, where they deceive people that this is what God is doing and I know it. Boom, dead, Ananias and Sapphira. But a bigger, in large numbers, when he wipes out large numbers, think about the Israelites. What are they doing when God says, you're going to die, I'm wiping you out. What are they doing? They're complaining. And I, I, I always tell our young people, listen, we have a rule on our team, no complaining, because God will kill you. So, I can show you the passages. Um, it's biblical. We don't like to mention it in church, but because a half of our church would be dead. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I disagree with that. That's just not fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're dead. Oh, this precede up here. <laughs> But seriously, complaining to God is, is reprehensible, Sarah. and we don't, we don't even think about it. We, we love complaining. But anyway, so, they, so the Pharisees have a problem with this. Um, it's the Sabbath. You have no right to pick up your bed. It is not lawful. He answered them, the man who healed me and gave me back my strength, he, have helped, he himself said to me, pick up your bed and walk. And, you know, you're talking to Pharisees here, guys that know the law, and they're like, they asked him, well, who's the man who told you pick up your bed and walk? And the invalid who had been healed did not know who it was. You know, that dude that was just standing, where is that guy? 
The, see, the thing is, the fact that the guy is standing there in front of the Pharisees makes no difference to him. That he's healed right in front makes no difference because we're the ones that decide if you have the right to be healed or not. We do. Like that. They asked him, who is the man who told you to pick up your bed? Now the invalid who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had quietly gone away, had passed on unnoticed, since there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, when Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, see, you're well. There's the evidence. There's the proof. Look, you're well, man. Look. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty strong send-off. I've been crippled my whole life. Stop sinning or it's going to get worse than that. Wow, that would keep me pretty much on a straight path, I think, for a while at least. <laughs> 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews began to persecute Jesus and sought to kill him. Wow, that's messed up stuff. So we read that passage that night. And um, so we decided, let's, let's do what Jesus did with the Palestinians, what he did right there. Let's go and figure out what they know about their own condition, what they already know. Let's don't, and then let's give them the answer to getting well. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. I said, I thought this will probably take about the actual, what we have, to, the good news we have to say to these guys will probably take about five minutes. Okay, now, I wish we had a long time to talk about the, the Now, these two young people have never done anything like this before, so they're pretty nervous about it. But, but like Ed said, Don and I have been doing this a long time. We've failed so many times and failed really hard. And in those times, it was like, it was God saying, stay in my word. Do what's in the word. Stop inventing your own stuff. You can't do it better than this. You can't be more clever than this. Here's where it is. You start altering stuff out of here. You start talking about stuff other than the kingdom of God. You change the message from the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God into a sin escape lecture. It doesn't work. It's very limited in its strength because you're changing what I'm saying. And so, so we've learned this over the years, and so I, I, I feel very confident. There's two, there's two reasons why I like talking to people, total strangers, people I, I've been talking to for a long time, is because, one, I know God loves them, and I know he'll work. He'll speak to them. I know he will. I know. I trust him completely. And the second is because I trust him completely, I don't care what happens. Do you understand that? It's not on me. I don't, I'm not, what are they going to think of me? It doesn't matter. I don't care. It's not up to me. So that's such a release. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So why do you always try doing it apart from me? Why? See? So I, I don't mind what they think of me personally. Most people just laugh at me because I break, I break conversational rules. So, so the, we had come out of, I'm, I'm t serious, I'm telling you, we came, our first four years on the field, what did you call it in this morning? You said it wasn't bad, it was miserable or something complimentary, introducing us like that. Yeah, and it was. It was horrible. It was awful. We got out there. We didn't know what we were doing. We had too much reliance on our own ability and all that stuff. And we got killed out there. Satan loves people like that. These guys aren't going to use the spirit. Good. Wipe them out. 
Americans, you know, they think they know it, wipe them out, and like that. Because he's not afraid of me. He's afraid of me transformed by Christ with the spirit at work in me. That's what he's worried about. So we learned what not to do for a long time. And then we met some guys that really knew what to do. And it was pretty simple. They said, well, we just believe the Bible. You know, we do what Jesus, and they had done, because they had failed for 15 years. You know, and see, here's the thing. This is why I say, why do we keep doing the same thing that doesn't work? Because I'll say for my own part, we're out there four years killing ourselves among Muslims in methodologies that don't work. So why don't we change it? Because it's supposed to work? I don't know. Instead of just going, Lord, this doesn't work. Yep, I know. <laughs> trying to get you to notice that. Putting you on trial for insulting Muhammad was one way to try and warn you this is dumb, what you're doing. There's a better way. And so finally, I, I got it. So we go back into Indonesia, and we meet these guys that are very effective in what they're doing. And they told us, we did the same thing for 15 years. We'll try and save you 10 years if you just listen to us. And so... They started working through it with us and, and, and you know, reading the Bible like this with us. And so this is what we started doing. And, and it was amazing. It was life transforming because all of a sudden Donna and I were really experiencing living in the kingdom of God. I mean, we knew we were both saved and all that. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really letting God transform you, your, our minds and hearts being transformed daily. Not once saved. Okay, there we go. Like that. But Daily. God, what about today? What about this guy right here, right now? What about this guy tomorrow? Like that, every day. And you know what that does? It makes you want to kind of get up in the morning. It really does. It's like, wow, that was awesome. Let's do that again tomorrow. Not like, oh, no, evangelism. <laughs> you know, it's like we were in, um, we were in a campus ministry when, when I was a freshman in college, and this ministry quite aggressive in evangelism. And so, like, they, they get you, yeah, and, you know, I like the guys a lot, and they get you in a Bible study, you're doing a Bible study, and they said, okay, now we got, we're going to do something about what we've read. We're going to go do evangelism. Okay, we're going to go to your dorm. We are? Yeah, what floor do you live on? <laughs> and all of you, this huge impulse to lie. And they go, and it's the girl's dorm. Hey, I thought, you know, it's like, <laughs> like you guys are, yeah, and we're going to go on your floor and knock on the door, and you're the one talking. Do you know what, the, I, I, I wanted to run the other direction as fast as I can go. And we did it, though. We did it. And man, I'll tell you, boy, we got some intense arguments with people. I dreaded it like that. This, the, the thing that I look back now is I love doing that kind of stuff. What it was, was, was doing it incorrectly made me hate the very thing that God made me to love. Interesting strategy by the enemy. So we come back, in, we come back in to the States for a furlough, and, and we go up to a conference where these guys are teaching, and it's the first time I really sat down for four days, and they just dug into it in the Bible, talking about working with Muslims and evangelism, the kingdom of God, and I really got super excited about it, four days of it, but now I was like, I got to go tell somebody that I got to go try and this, this. so I got to catch a flight out of Minneapolis back to Atlanta, and, I, so, and I'm late getting to the airport, and I tried to talk to my cab driver, but he didn't speak English. And, um, and so he drops me off the airport, and I'm, I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, I got 30 minutes. Okay, come on, God, give me, I, let me have somebody to talk to in this whole airport. And so um, I'm thinking, where are, all, where are all the people in desperate need of you, Lord, that probably know they really need you? Where are they in the airport? Where are they? They congregate, either smoking lounge 
which we can't go in because you'll be demon-possessed for the rest of your life. So that's off limits. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God strikes you with cancer immediately. <laughs> You're in with the smokers. Ah, you know, get away from those people. I feel sorry for smokers, you know, because when you're driving by a building, even when it's pouring rain, they're all out there in their little group, you know, out in the street. <laughs> We're so, get the smokers out of here, you know. Anyway, it, and they're, or they're in the, the bars, right? They, you, it's not hard to find lost people. You know, they kind of gather together and talk about being lost, basically, is what they do. So I find a guy and, uh, and uh, sit next to him. And I just, I go, I said to him, I said, I got it, I have to get on a plane, but I have got to tell you something that I just learned. He's like, all right, what? Lots of people are fairly accepting people, as long as you don't, it, well, I'll tell you what. So I, he goes, okay, you know, whatever. And uh, I said, so I do, I do this illustration for him that we learned there. And he goes, wow. He goes, that's interesting. He said, what do you do? What do you, like, what do you do for a job? And I said, oh, I work in the Muslim world. I work with Muslims. And he goes, do you like them? And I said, actually, I do. He goes, wow, good. He goes, because I didn't think anybody liked them. He goes, which makes them way more dangerous if nobody likes them. <laughs> That's pretty good logic. I was like, wow, I'm going to use that. <laughs> and like, like our pastor in Atlanta, he says, there's 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. That's a lot of people not to talk to. That's one in four people in the world. That means you have to avoid, out of every four people, you have to avoid and dislike one. So he said, so he said, he said how did you, why do you like them? And so I started talking about how, you know, God changed my heart and all that. And so he says, he goes, now listen to this. And I said, you know, I didn't like them, but God changed my heart. And actually, they almost put me in prison, but, you know, it was, because, it was God using it to help me learn to really appreciate them. And he goes, well, I don't like my dad. Wow, yes, yes. And I said, well, I think the same thing would work with your dad. And we talked about love and forgiveness. And I said, why are you in Minneapolis? He said, because my mom just died. And I love my mom. Boom, as deep down that guy's heart as you can go in 10 minutes. Wide open. Sharing the good news with him. He, he's a house painter in Colorado. Exchange email addresses. I hook him up with our buddies in Colorado who, who actually... Um, well, anyway, they, they did a great job with him. And, and then he's, he, I gotta, he's got to go. And I, and I said, i got to go, too. So I'm going, walking down to the terminal. And I'm like, wow, God, this is so incredible. Like, this way is so, like, asking them questions and getting them to tell you where they're lost. One of the guys at the conference kept, this was his advice to me. Do you want to win a lost person? And, yeah. Ask them where they're lost and what it would take to win them, and then do what they say. <laughs> that works beautifully. It does. Because we always think that they, they don't know anything, and we got to explain everything to them. So anyway, so we're walking to the plane, and I'm walking, and I'm like, keep going, Lord, keep going. And, and I see this Buddhist monk coming down the tram. I'm like, yes! <laughs> he's like, please let him be on my plane. Please let him be on my plane. And he's coming down. He's got the robes, you know. And he, and he goes to our, our plane. I'm like, yes! And so I follow him onto the plane, and he goes all the way to the back, and I'm in the front. I'm like, oh, man. Okay, Lord, um, I, let me talk. So I just start rearranging seats with people back, all the way back. Can you want that? You know, like this and moving them around. And the flight attendant's like, what are you doing? And I said, I want to sit back next to that Buddhist guy. <laughs> and she goes, 
all right, you know, she said, if they'll move, go ahead. I'm not helping you. And I said, I don't need your help. I can do it. <laughs> I get all the way to the back row, and there's a, there's a, a, a pilot for that airline, you know, doing a jump flight to, to Atlanta to fly out, and he doesn't want to move. He's, all, he's the last guy sitting next to the Buddhist guy. And so I'm like, I, I, have, an, I have an aisle seat up in the front. Better, you're sitting by the toilet. Come on, I'll, let me take that seat. You go up. I don't want to move. Leave me alone. And so I'm like, really? I'm just asking. And the Buddhist guy's just like, because here's this guy that just is so determined to sit by me. It's like, kind of weird. And so he's just listening to me negotiate with this guy. And, and finally, I said to the guy, are you going to talk to this Buddhist monk during the flight? And the guy said, no. And I said, well, I want to. Can you go sleep up there? And the guy goes, all right. And he gets up. And he goes up to the front. And I sit down next to the Buddhist monk, who now has this great sense of anticipation of why I want to sit that so badly next to him. So half the job was done. He was already interested. And we take off. He, he's, he's a big monastery in Atlanta, actually. And so, we're, and so I start asking him questions. Now, is... What, what does a Buddhist monk probably already know about faith? What do you think? What, is, what do you think he knows? What would his understanding be? What, what's his goal? Let's put it. What's a, the, the goal of a Buddhist? To achieve enlightenment, nirvana, right. Okay, so, so, I, so I'm asking him questions. And it turns out he's like, he, well, his job is he flies around the country and he finds wayward Buddhists and sort of brings them back into Buddhist fold. And I said, oh, you're like the Billy Graham of Buddhist. <laughs> He's a Cambodian guy. He goes, I do not know what this means. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So, I entertain myself, as you can see in these conversations. Keep it light. Keep it light. And so I said to him, I said, I said, well, I was just at this conference, and it was awesome. And you know, we were talking about the kingdom of God and all that. And I said, like, what's your goal as a, as a Buddhist? What's your goal? And he says, you know, to achieve enlightenment. And I said, that's mine, too. And he goes, it is? I said, yeah. And he goes, aren't you a Christian? And I said, yeah. And he goes, that's your goal, to achieve enlightenment? Is that our goal? Is there anywhere in the Bible that said, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened? It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And so he's like, I don't, I've never heard a Christian talking about being enlightened. And I, sh I get my Bible out, show him the verse. He goes, wow. So I draw this circle, and I put in the circle, enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> and I put a Buddhist circle and an evangelical circle, and I said, look, we're both trying to achieve enlightenment. The difference, so we're both trying to go in the same direction. The difference is for you to get there, you have to, you have to basically beat yourself to death to get in there. And I said, that's not the way in. There's a better way. There's a way. His name's Jesus. And I said, this is the way. Now, because I was talking about enlightenment, instead of him becoming a Christian, he was very interested in. Because when in this passage does Jesus tell this crippled man that in order to walk, he's got to be a Christian? Never. It never comes up. Or what religion he is. Doesn't come up. Jesus never mentions it. Jesus is, what's the condition of your heart? I can fix that. That's, that's the good news. And I can fix it right now. That's the good news. That's why people press in to hear Jesus across cultural, doesn't matter. They press in, they throng to hear him. So I explained this to the Buddhist monk, and he said, do you live in Atlanta? And I said, I do. He said, would you like to spend the night in our monastery? He said, I'd like to talk about this further, because it's not a long flight. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, 
you know, I, I guess. And I said, I just live there. I could drive over. And he said, well, you know, we, we like to stay up at night and talk. And he said, plus we're having lentil soup. And I said, no, I'll, dri I'll drive over. <laughs> Anyway, so we exchanged cards and all. And so, like, the Lord's really starting to teach me how to just bypass the typical barriers that we fight about. Just go right past them. So, so that happened again on the next, uh, on the, in the next part of the flight. It was, it was awesome. But, and, but so here, here's the thing. Because so, uh, I want to stop. I'm done. I sit next to this guy. I sit next to this guy, and I say... Now, this is on a different flight, but now I'm perfecting my form. I sit next to this guy. In fact, Don and I split up so we can sit next to other people. It's just, you know, it's hard to, you know, anyway. So I sit between these two guys, and I'm like, Lord, I want to talk to you know, either one of these guys. Which one do you want me to talk to? I'll talk to either one. And so this guy here pops open his computer, man. He's doing all these charts and graphs and diagrams, and I'm like, he's lost. I'm not going to talk to him. <laughs> this guy, maybe. And they have no hope over here. And so I, and this guy's about, he's a little bit younger than me, and, I, and we take off. And I said, um, and I introduced myself and asked him his name, and like that. And I said to him, how's your marriage? He's married. I said, how's your marriage? He goes, what, what does that mean? And I said, scale of 1 to 10, where are you? He goes, I've never had anybody, especially a stranger, ask me to scale my wedding. <laughs> and I said, well... He said, that's the most bizarre question I've ever heard. And I said, well, this is a long flight, and I have a lot of bizarre questions to ask. <laughs> and he laughed. He goes, he goes, all right. He goes, I have a really good marriage. I happen to have a really good marriage, and I'm very happy with it, and I have three kids and a little. And, um, and so we, we start talking about that, and he's a very nice guy, really, really nice guy. And I have the sense that he's a religious person, just by the you know, way he talks. And so I said something about faith and prayer to him. And he goes, hold on. He goes, are you an evangelical Christian? And I was like, yes. He goes, well, I'm a Mormon, just so you know. Now, why did he tell me that? To shut you up. Yeah, to, to shut me down. Uh -huh. Because why does he, what does he think I'm going to do to him? Evangelist. Yeah, I'm going to try and get rid of Mormonism. I'm going to take it on. The thing is, they're very good at that, too, you know. <laughs> and I said, here, so here's my answer. I don't care. I don't care that you're a Mormon. I just want to talk to you. He goes, well, aren't you going to try and, you know, insult Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon? Aren't you going to attack it? And I said, I don't know anything about Joseph Smith. I really actually don't know much about it. And I've never read the Book of Mormon, so I don't, wouldn't have much to say about that. So, no. I said, in fact, let me... I just wanted to talk about our families and stuff. And he said, okay, all right. But he's super defensive after that. And so what do we have in common with Mormons? Evangelicals, what do we have in common with them? Where's the crossover point? <laughs> yeah. uh, the sarcastic front row, yes. Um, yeah, what, Mormons are very strong in family, and they're very strong in missions. So I, I thought, oh, I'm, go, I'm going from the missions angle, since he's identified himself. And I said, did you go on a mission? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I did. Where? You know, he said, I did two years. Where? In Micronesia. And I said, that's not, that's not a mission. That's a two-year vacation. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed. And I, and I said, uh, did, you know, what happened? Did, did it, you know, was it spiritually moving to you? And he said, well, you know, it was, it's uh, required. And it was, he said, I enjoyed it, and, you know, I wanted to do it. And I said, I did a mission, too. 
And he said, you did? And I said, yeah. And I said, where? He said, where did you go? Because his mission idea is, is, his idea of what I said is what his idea of mission, right? You have to remember that when you're talking to people. It's not what you think, it's what they think you think. <laughs> and so I said, uh, well, I started out in Indonesia. We were there for eight years. And then we moved to Baghdad in 2003. He says, like, during the war, yeah. And uh, we were there for a year, and then we moved over to Jordan. We were there for, we've been there for six years, and we're going to you know, move back. He goes, how long are your missions? <laughs> and I said, I said, we're evangelicals. We go for life. <laughs> and he laughed. And he goes, that means, and he, and he knew, I told him I had three kids. He goes, that means your kids grew up in those countries. And I said, yep. He goes, now listen to what he says. I could never do that. No. Oh. Really, why? I could never put my kids in a place like that. I'd be so fearful I could never do it. Bingo, here we go. Here's the good news. And I said, well, actually, you could. You could, you could live a life with complete peace about your kids, but it only happens inside the kingdom of God. The question is, how do you live there? He goes, keep going. Side draw circle. <laughs> kingdom of God. Evangelical Christian Mormon. I said... The only place where, where God can say to me, I want you to move your family to Baghdad during the war, you put your kids in Baghdad International School, which is already totally bombed out and meeting in a secret location. They're the only Americans in the country, teenagers. The only reason that makes any sense and can be done with any sense of peace is because I live in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, he rules. Not terrorists, not Sharia law, nothing but him. And I'm not afraid. He said, I'd love to live like that. And I said, let me tell you how. There's a way. There's only one way, but there's a way. And I told him. Now, why is Jesus appealing to this Mormon? Why are we not arguing about the Book of Mormon? Because I said to him, this is what I'm saying to him. Do you want to get, he said, I can never live like that. I'd be, I'm afraid for my kids all the time. Here's my question. Do you want to get well? Yeah. Yeah, I do, but, 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 but. And I said, no. Look at Jesus. Live it starting now. And that guy said, okay, he said, I'm going to tell you something. His name is David. He said, I'm going to tell you something. I have been fasting and praying for a week for God to speak something new into my life. He said, what's freaking me out is he sent you. <laughs> I said, surprise! <laughs> And, uh, and boy, he laid it out what he was going through in his life. Very personal, very deep, very emotional. And um, he said, I don't know what to do. I said, I said, that, these issues can be done, but they cannot be done outside the kingdom of God. You have to be in the kingdom for God to fix these things in your life. Don't be afraid to go in there. Go. And so he was like, okay. And so we went deeper into how to do that, how to pray about that. I tell him, here's some guys that I know out in, in the West. These guys are specialists in the kind of things you're dealing with. They will, they, they, they will, you, you'll love these guys. They will talk to you exactly like I'm talking to you. The rest of the flight, we, we just mapped out the steps of life in the kingdom. He, he was so open. And so when we land... We walk off the plane. He and I walk off the plane. Donna's up in the front somewhere. And so she's, I meet her down at the baggage. And he walks up to Donna. And he said, Are you, is, this, is he your husband? And um, 
And Donna said, Jan, he goes, I, I, you know, I just want to tell you that he spoke the word of God in my life today, and I'm so grateful for it. Hmm. That's exactly how Jesus would have talked to a Mormon. Not like, your book is stupid. <laughs> your prophet's a thief. I know. Well, how, what does that do? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right, exactly. So in Palestine, we go in, and the 400 whatever students are there, and uh, we know now what to say. And I tell, I tell Chris and Rebecca, you guys are new. Don't say anything. Don't share your faith. Don't say anything. I always say it, tell that to them because it makes them really want to do it, and they do it to spite me. It's a very effective tactic <laughs> I've learned over the years. Because <laughs> our girls in Baghdad, you know, they're, they're, the Blackhawks are shooting down through our neighborhood, and I tell them, you do not need ice cream tonight. And they're like, yes, we do. It's like, do you realize what's going on around us? And, and they do this thing to me. I hate God said that though a thousand fall on his right, yet I will stand for the years with me. And I'm like, don't use the Bible on me like that. <laughs> That's a metaphor. <laughs> and off they go down the street. So anyway, so I tell them don't do it, and then I know they'll do it. So that's how I work. That's how spiritual I am. So anyway, so I stand up to speak. It's a room like this, very much like this. And so um, these guys are angry, angry people. What's their view of American Christians, do you think? Do you think they have one ounce of trust in us, like us? No. In fact, what do they think we think about them? We hate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Satan loves that game. You know, these Christians, they hate your guts. And, and look at the facts. Here's the facts. You live in this Walden city, and they don't care. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and there's no one to help you down there. How long have you been trapped here? 35 years. Have you ever seen the water move? Nope. They're crippled. They're lame. They can't walk. So I stand up and I say, how many of you have met an American Christian? See, this is how open we are. And none of them have. And so I said, OK, in, instead of me talking, you ask me questions. Go. Anything you want. Fire away. Oh, my gosh. You should, oh, it, was, it was tough. They asked me questions that just made me want to cry, actually. Their perception of us made me want to cry. So from Satan. And unfortunately, a lot of it is accurate, what they think we think about them. You know how they know that? The internet. The internet sites talking about the Antichrist coming from Islam, um, all that kind of stuff. Do we really know that stuff? <laughs> Do, we, Do we really know that? Why are we writing that stuff? Why are we, books are selling on that topic like crazy in the bookstores. I got to read why we should hate these people. Gotta, gotta get that. Satan's just like, uh, they're out. They're done. Good. We don't have to worry about these people going over there. They don't like them. And so they're firing questions at me right and left. And I'm trying to answer as honestly as I can. Sometimes I said, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Don't you Christians love Jesus? Yes, we do. The Jews deny Jesus. They spit on his name. That's kind of accurate. Why do you support them and lock us up when we revere Jesus like you. I don't know. I don't know why we do that. I can't tell you why we do that. I'm not here to give you 
ant political answers. So it goes like that for a while, and then they're kind of punched out. <laughs> they're kind of, okay, that's all our wrath and hostility that we can throw out right now. And I said, okay, let me ask you guys a question. What's the best news you could ever hear right now, starting today? What would be the best news you could ever word, ever hear? Give me one word. What is it? It was freedom, which means down goes the wall. Freedom. And I said, well, I can tell you right now how to get that. I can tell you how to get that freedom right now. I can tell you how to get rid of that. The wall, you can see it right out the window, the guard tower, that if they touch that wall, they're shot dead. And there it is right there. And so, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're, it's right there. And I said, I can tell you, I knocked that wall down right now, starting today. But before I do, let's review your strategies. Because I want them to think. And so I said, strategy number one, Britain wants to divide the, the land in half. You're on one side, it was on the other. But you say no. You guys say, Palestinians say no. Because there's more of you than them. And you say, we'll just drive them off the land ourselves. And you lose. These are the facts. And they get really excited. And Chris and Rebecca are looking at me like, there's no way out of here. You know, like, <laughs> it's a good strategy. <laughs> and, um, and I said, strategy number two, when that one failed, let's wait till Israel's highest holy days when they're fasting to observe their God and their religion. And you get seven other countries and you invade them. And you lose. Twice. <laughs> with that strategy. So what's the third? The third. Here's the third strategy. Let's start a guerrilla warfare with them. Let's fight them. Let's kill them everywhere we can and just wear them down. And so you pick leaders that you yourselves know have stolen everything you have and you've lost in every way. And look how you live with your strategy. I said, now here's your final strategy. We watched it today. You're now going to kill each other. And I said, you, you wrap bombs around yourself, and you can't get out, so you blew up each other. That's your strategy. I said, do you know where that strategy comes from? Do you think that strategy comes from Allah? And they have their heads at home. I said, where does it come from? And the one guy in the front goes, Satan. And I said, yep. And he's killing you guys so bad. Your crippled men lay in here. No one's going to help you. You can't do it yourselves, and you have no hope. But there is a way. So I said, I'm going to read something to you from the Bible. I love when I say those kind of words, and I look at the young people. They're like, you know. <laughs> I take out my Bible in Palestine, Muslim world, at the invitation of the Palestinian Liberation Authority, our enemies. And here's what I read. Remember that you, Palestinians, were at that time separated, living apart from Christ, excluded from all part in him, utterly estranged and outlawed from the rights of Israel as a nation. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And strangers with no share in the sacred compacts of the messianic promise, with no knowledge of or right in God's agreements or covenants, and you had no hope, no promise. You were in the world without God. That's how you are right now. No argument. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once so far away 
through the blood of Christ have been brought near for he himself is our peace, our bond of unity and harmony. He has made both Jew and, this is what I said, Palestinian one body and has broken down and destroyed and abolished the hostile dividing wall between us by abolishing in his own crucified flesh the enmity caused by the law, which in its decrees and ordinances, which he annulled, and he from the two might create in himself one new man, one new quality of humanity out of the two, so making peace. That's how you knock down a wall. That's what this is about. If anyone wants to explore further the strategy of knocking down that wall, we're here for four days, and then we're going to talk about Jesus as the way. See ya. And uh, we left. We sat down. Silence. You know why? Because the word of God cuts people's hearts like nothing else can. I can't think of some clever thing to say. It's here. It's already been said like this. And I'm telling you, it wiped them out. And it was just silent. And we sat down. And then the PLA, PL, Palestinian Liberation guy stood up. And he said, OK, it's dismissed. He said, if you want to talk to these guys, they'll be here tomorrow. They were a little, mm, like, you know, like, wow, that was kind of intense, preaching Jesus out of the Bible in front of our people like that. Um, but why is that good news to them? Why is that like, let, let's kill him, he's an infidel? Why not? Why did they not rush me and kill me? Why? It's good news. It affects their life right now. And it can work. And what else is there to do? I have nowhere else to go. We've tried everything. That's why I laid it out like that. Who's going to help you? Nobody. Can you do it? No. Jesus is the only one that can. Stand up. Pick up your mat. Walk. Look at me like that. The next day, guess how many students came back to meet with us to talk about Jesus? I, I, we had between, I don't know, three, four hundred in the room. <laughs> about... 500 came back because cool thing about Air Palestinians is they gossip like crazy and that went out over the wire like so fast and they brought their friends why did they bring their friends it's good news that's why crowds follow Jesus around and want to know him I'm not talking about a new religion to you Palestinians I'm talking about a transformed life and you know what when they came and talked to us it was amazing because I came in the next day and the two young people were already there. They left early to go be with these people. So I come in the front door where the gunfight had been and the receptionist is not there. Our liaison with woman with the Palestinians is not there. And I'm walking around like, where is she? I mean, I, got, she has, I have to be with her during this day for what, what we have to do because I have to meet with the leadership. And, uh, and one of the Palestinian girls says, oh, she left with, your, with Rebecca. Rebecca went off with her. I was like, great. And so I have to wait till Rebecca comes back with our liaison. And they come in, and they're smiling and laughing. And, um, and I said, uh, <laughs> this is how spiritual I said, Rebecca, I need this. I have to have this girl. And she goes, oh, it's OK. Um, tell him what happened. And the Palestinian lady, she's covered. She goes, I just came into the kingdom through Jesus. I was like, oh, I look like an idiot. I'm mad they took her, and she came into the kingdom. And she did. And that's how it started the day. And so I walk into the next room with her, the liaison, and I walk in, and there's Chris, and he's got, I don't know, six or seven grad students, and he's doing the circles, kingdom of God, Muslim, Christian, and what's the way into the kingdom, explaining it to them. These guys are rookies on the field. They're doing things we never dreamed about in 10 years of ministry. They're doing it their first month because they, we taught them where, what doesn't work. 
and they've changed it. If, if this is what sharing your faith is like, don't you want to do it? You know what the Palestinian guys that came that come to, that have come to faith that work with us, you know what they said? They said, they said we can win, we can win our country in ten years like this. We can do it. We can do it, not you, not me, not Christians per se, but we can win our country in ten years. And they said, and then we'll start trying to win Jews. Now I have students, it is the most amazing thing I've ever watched. And it happens, it's happening in Atlanta too, but in Palestine, standing in Palestine at the Czech cross point where there's Jews and, and Palestinians where they can actually interact, watching Muslim believers sharing Christ with Jewish citizens, Israel, Israeli citizens. It's the most remarkable thing. You know why? Because that's what it's like in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is how we want to live, like this. Your word tells us how to do this. God, we need to know it. And beyond that, we need to actually believe it. That when you say something in the Bible, it's true and it works. And when we're living lives that don't work, we need to come back to you and say, what's wrong? Why isn't this happening? Why do I hate talking about you to other people? Why am I terrified about that? Because, Lord, this is how it can be. You are not afraid of Palestinians. You are not afraid of Al-Qaeda. You're not afraid of Islamic Jihad. You're not afraid of them. You, 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 built, you built the New Testament on a terrorist named Saul, whose goal was to destroy the church and kill your people. And, he's, and what did you That's the guy I want right there. I'll meet him, I'll change him, and he will become our greatest advocate. And Lord, I pray that we would look at people like that. A Palestinian that once that's committed his life to destroying us, that we believe you can actually turn his heart, that you can actually do it, and that we could actually be there and watch it happen. It's the most incredible thing I know of. Lord, cause us to long for this, we pray. Only you can do it. Only your spirit can do this in us. Take away the fear. Take away the hostility, the hatred, the anger. And Lord, make us people of faith who, as we're going into the world, make disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me say one more thing. Two more things. One is next week, what I'm going to talk about is the reasons why we don't live like this. Okay, now those are critically important. Let's go through why we don't live like this and how do we resolve that. Secondly, Right now, going, just because you'll never see this on Fox News or CNN, because, you know, that's, doesn't, right now in Bangkok, Thailand, is a meeting of Muslim leaders that have come to Christ. So they do it every year. And in that meeting, last year, were three Taliban leaders. They're leaders of 25,000 Taliban soldiers in Afghanistan. They go through Afghanistan and Pakistan. Those three men have given their lives to Christ. It's an amazing story. The guy that works with them, an American guy, is a phenomenal man, and he, he is not afraid to go up and live among them. He's been there for 25 years. When the Taliban main leader stood up, he gave his testimony. It was like, oh, my gosh. God can reach Taliban? Aren't they beyond him? He gives his testimony, and here's what he says at the end. He says to the Western Christians in this room, I want to tell you something. You will never beat the Taliban militarily. 
you, you're good, and you've killed a lot of them, but you will never beat them. He said, but you can win us tomorrow with the good news of the kingdom of God. And he sat down. That is so true. We, we, we're not here to beat the world. We're here to win the world. That's what we need to do. Thank you.